Bill mentioned that song was sung by, you know, all kinds of denominations. Uh, my parents were chagrined that they put so much Catholic education into me and so little of it took. But <clears throat> uh, this was one of the, the songs for me as a kid that I still remember was, was this one on Palm Sunday. And uh, whatever did or didn't take from my childhood, singing, uh, I do not sing well, but I love to sing. And music and praise in the church is still a highlight for me. So this was a great opening for me for Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is one of my favorite Sundays of the year. Uh, it has a certain anticipation. You know, even if you're not a liturgical church like us, uh, Palm Sunday is so intimately connected in time and in themes with Resurrection Sunday, with Easter, that it makes sense, even if we don't observe Advent, to start talking about Christ and the Resurrection Sunday on Palm Sunday. Let me give you some context. We will be in a Palm Sunday uh, setting in Matthew 21 in just a minute. But just to put this in context, remember this is the end of Jesus' ministry, and He's come down from Galilee in the north, and He's visited some friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, a guy he'd raised from the dead in the town of Bethany. And if you remember, he'd been through the, the town, actually two towns, Old Town and New Town of Jericho, where he had given sight to a couple blind guys, one we know, blind Bartimaeus, the other one's name we're not told. Uh, and as he's gone, apparently from Bethany and Jericho, at least this entourage has kind of come with him, come along the way with him as he's headed to Jerusalem. And remember that for the Jews, Easter's a big deal for us, but probably not as big as Passover was for the Jews. So this is, this is going into the week of Passover for the Jews. So this is a time in which the city of Jerusalem would be filled with pilgrims. It was full and would keep filling up through that Passover celebration that would be coming up at the end of that week. So it was an exciting time. And Jesus is coming to Jerusalem with this large entourage that's following him from Bethany and from Jericho. And that's where we'll pick up this morning. <clears throat> we'll primarily be in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 16, and then we'll take a short break at the end of that to Luke 19, verses 41 through 44. So, coming from the area of Jericho, when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Sorry, as I almost always do, I'll make comments through the text here. Matthew adds, parenthetically, so we don't miss it. Matthew who wants to make sure, especially for Jews, that everyone knows Jesus is the Messiah. Matthew quotes both Isaiah 62 and Zechariah 9 here when he says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went, did just as Jesus had instructed them, brought the donkey and the colt, laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coat. Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. By the way, thus the term Palm Sunday, that's why we wave palms, it's from this verse, this description. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And let me comment briefly here because I won't touch on most of this uh, in a bit. Uh, Hosanna means literally God save us or God save us now. And by this time, because it was used so repetitively in the Psalms, it was used just as a shout of praise, but literally that's what it meant. God save us now. So as Jesus the Messiah is riding into Jerusalem, they're saying, God save us now. And they're declaring him to be the son of David. Matthew uses this phrase ten times in his gospel because all the Jews knew that the Messiah had to be the descendant of David. So they say, God save us now, son of David. They're recognizing him as Messiah. And sorry, last, the phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, this is straight out of Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 is the last of the Psalms of Ascent. So what this means is when Jews were going up to Jerusalem for annual feasts, Psalms 113 through 118 were routinely sung as these pilgrims came up to Jerusalem. So think about this for just a second. The Jews sang this every year on their way up to Jerusalem at this feast. But this year when they sing it and they say it, it's actually being fulfilled before them. Because blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is Jesus. So all those years they'd sung it before and declared that phrase, it was sort of anticipatory. But on this Palm Sunday, when they say that phrase, they would have been singing this anyway. Jesus, the one who is blessed in the name of the Lord, he's actually writing in to their presence. This, was, this is exciting stuff. Verse 10, when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And remember, Jerusalem's a fairly big city, so part of the city had gone out to welcome him in but part of the city is still inside the walls. They don't know that this entourage is entering the city at whichever gate it was, the south gate or the east gate to the city. And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And I'll just mention to you so you maybe perhaps avoid confusion. Matthew makes this a seamless narrative here, but we know from Mark that what transpires next actually happens on Monday. But Matthew just Matthew and Luke does the same thing. He just runs the narrative together because he wants us to see this in the context of the Messiah coming to the temple. So at verse 12, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting or screaming, (laughs) shouting and screaming in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David. I'm sure that's what that was. Hosanna to the Son of David. They became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise for yourself. And diverting briefly to Luke 19, verses 41 to 44. This goes back as they're still approaching Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. When he approached Jerusalem, this is Jesus, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and will surround you and hem you in on every side 
and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. This, of course, is the destruction that follows in 70 AD by Titus and the Romans. <clears throat> I have taught, I've spoken on Palm Sunday many times, and I confess sometimes it's hard to dig up what sounds like original, fresh material. And as I labored through these passages the last couple of weeks, I decided to simply do this, keep it simple. I'm going to share with you five things that I simply found encouraging that gladdened me as I read the Palm Sunday passages. Five things. Nothing complex at all. The first one is in Matthew 21, 1 through 9. I'm simply glad. I'm encouraged by the fact that Jesus offered himself to the nation of Israel clearly, unabashedly, in the light of day, one more time here on this last week of his life. When he rode into the city on that little donkey, Jesus was making a proclamation. And he was offering himself to Israel as their promised Messiah and their king. When we read the thing of the donkey, a lot of times I think too much gets made of the donkey that he's humble. It's like it's sort of a half claim to be their king or the Messiah. But that's, that's simply not the way we're supposed to read this. Kings rode donkeys too. So, for instance, when David makes sure that it's his son Solomon who's made king, what's he do? He has Solomon put on his donkey. He doesn't put him on a war horse. Because horses were beasts that were used for warfare. So if the king came riding in on a horse, it's an element or it's a symbol of war. This king comes in on a donkey because he's bringing peace with him, not warfare. As you'll see in a reference here in just a minute. But also, if you lived in these days in the Middle East or the Roman world, and you, you can see this in some of the old uh, Hollywood movies, um, if you were a conquering king, uh, and a city knew that you were their new ruler, and they wanted to appease you, or if you were their homebred king, and let's say you delivered them from some oppressor, when you came to the gates of the city, what they would do is they would open their defensive gates. You know how a dog, if a dog's, if a more aggressive dog comes to another dog, what's the meek dog do? He lies on his back and he exposes himself, basically. Well, that's what these guys in the city did. They opened their defensive gates because they were recognizing that this person marching up had the right to enter. And so they would go out, the city, the people in the city would go out, they would greet that king conqueror or otherwise, they would celebrate him outside the city and then they would bring him with them back into the city. And typically, in Rome, they would throw uh, roses and flowers in the street in front of him. Here you see the coats and the palm branches. But guys, this is the stuff of kings. The donkey indicates peace. And it does indicate humility, someone who's not coming with a sword or a rod of iron. But it's, that does in no way mitigates the fact that Jesus is saying, I am the king, and I have the right to rule in this city when he rides in. And the people who are doing this, that's what they're saying. They're acknowledging, you're the king, you're the rightful one, and we recognize that, we celebrate your entrance into our city. We open the gates and bring you in. I'll just mention, just because Matthew does to make it clear, this is kind of broken up a little bit in his gospel, but when you read in verse 5, say to the daughter of Zion, that's Isaiah 62, 11. 
and he takes it out of the rest of that verse, but the verse says in Isaiah, Say to the daughter of Zion, Lo, your salvation comes. And behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. That, those are the words of Kings. But, Lo, your salvation comes. So when Matthew quotes this, he's saying Jesus, the Messiah, is your Savior. He's fulfilling this prophecy that your Savior would come to you. And then when he quotes the rest of verse 5, your king's coming, gentle, that's Zechariah 9.9. So Zechariah had said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. He's just, endowed with salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Read verse 10 too, though. When this happens, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be cut off. He will speak peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea. That would be from the Dead Sea to the Mediterranean, from the river, that's the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth, that would be Egypt. This is a, this is a claim that the Messiah would come and he would bring peace with him. So when Jesus rides in on that donkey and Matthew references for us Zechariah 9, it's that thought. It's that this is the one who would come and would bring you peace. And that's why he's on a donkey and not on a horse. So Jesus is clearly offering himself to Israel here as the Prince of Peace. Now, read the Gospel accounts before this. What happens when someone wants to seize Jesus and make him king? He, he scoots away, doesn't he? He won't have anything to do with it. And it's because the time wasn't right. It's not because he wasn't claiming to be king or was somehow conflicted. The time wasn't right because he had disciples to train and he had messages to give. But it's not because he wasn't claiming to be king. It's simply that that wasn't the right time or the right way. Here, as Jesus comes in, he's got... he's. He's had about a three to three and a half year ministry. And all along the way, he's had constant rejection by the national Jewish leaders. But he's always made a claim to be the Messiah. So here, one last time, this last week of his life, he's making another bold claim to be their Messiah, and he's offering himself to them one more time, unapologetically, in the light of day. He knows what com- what's coming, but he makes the offer anyway. In Isaiah 65, 2, God said to Israel hundreds of years earlier, He says, I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. That's sort of the thought here. Jesus has presented Himself, and even though He's got this, uh, we would say at least partial acceptance and recognition here, this is short-lived, isn't it? Because the crowds... (laughs) In part, this is, this is the same crowd that will, will call for his blood within the week. So it's a short-lived embrace, if you will. But the reason I love this is because Jesus is unabashedly offering himself again, even though he's been rejected, and even though he knows he will be rejected again. So think of that. If you've read the poem, The Hound of Heaven, there's this uh, thought of God. He's like this holy hound that chases you down through the corridors of time rather than let you get away from him easily. Or God's like a suitor who's not easily offended or put off by our rejections, but he keeps offering himself again and again. And that's exactly what you see Jesus doing here. 
He has been rejected by all the religious leadership, save one or two. He will be rejected by the nation. But he still comes and he still makes an honest appeal and offer to them to accept him. Rejected before, will be rejected again, and nevertheless he says, I'm making you the same offer again. Here it is. And I love this because God's still doing the same thing with us today. That, you know, the Lord gives us opportunity, typically, after opportunity, to hear his claims, to learn something about him, and to decide for ourselves to accept or reject him. And he's not put off easily. And typically we get opportunity after opportunity to hear his claims and to say yes to the king of glory or no thanks. But the offers are real. And they're repeated. He doesn't say one time, you blew it, so I, I, I make no such offer again. He offers himself time after time after time. And this is this one grand offer, if you will, partially accepted but ultimately rejected on Palm Sunday. So it's an invitation to life. I'm glad Jesus offered himself one last final time on Palm Sunday. The second thing that I'm encouraged by or glad about as I've read these passages is I'm glad Jesus cleared the temple in verses 12 and 13. He came in and, uh, you, you know, if you know the the layout of the temple uh, where this happens, everything in Israel had to do with the separation, degrees of separation between you and God. So the nation was separated from the rest of the nations, the nation of Israel. And then within the nation, the priesthood was separated from the rest of the people. And then geographically, the temple, the whole temple mount was separate from the rest of the city. And once you got to the temple mount, the, the biggest enclosure was the court of the Gentiles. And that's where low lowlifes like you and me, who weren't born Jewish, could go to the temple. But that's as far as you could go. Then there had been the inner court, the court of the women, where you could go if you were a Jew. The inner court where the sacrifices were made. And then, of course, into the temple itself and the Holy of Holies. But Jesus comes to the temple, and it's the court of the Gentiles. And what's going on? These guys are trading money. And they're selling sacrifices, animals for sacrifice. And on one hand, you'd say this is all fine and good. On one hand, it would be. Just not there. What was going on is they were bringing the business, if you will, of the temple into the temple. And what it was, it was two things. It was this holy offense to God. It was disrespectful to God. This was his temple. This stuff wasn't supposed to be going on here. But the other thing it was, and I think the thing perhaps for Jesus that was more uh, angering, was he said, my house, the temple, is supposed to be a place of prayer for all the people. For all the peoples, and that would be us. That'd be the Gentiles. So picture this, you're a Gentile. Let's say you're, uh, I don't know, uh, from Syria. And you've heard about the God of Israel, and so you go to Israel, and you go to the temple, and what are you faced with when you get to the only place of the temple you can go? You're faced with guys who want to rip you off. Because you couldn't offer money in the temple that wasn't uh, coined. It was the specific denominations, Jewish, Jewish minted coins in the temple. So you had to take your Syrian liras or whatever and change them. Well, these guys were ripping you off. And then you had to buy an animal to make a sacrifice. 
and they were char charging exorbitant fees. Jesus says it's like your den of robbers. So the place where God wanted Gentiles like you and me to come and be able to find out about him and meet him, these guys are going away probably disgusted because it's just a place to get ripped off. You can imagine they'd go away thinking, this is it. And you know, today, you'll often see the same things. Religious people making it hard for non-religious people to know God. So think of this for us today. Back then, Jesus cleanses the temple. He drives out the, the business people. When those who don't know Christ come into his temple today, which is the church, the New Testament makes that clear, we're the church, we are the temple of God, do they get an accurate representation of Christ? Or do they go away jaded and put off? Do they see God as he declares himself to be in the scriptures? Do they see him accurately? Is he accurately portrayed, represented in the church? Or do they see a little demigod who wants their money? Or do they see a holy cosmic killjoy who wants to keep them from all joy, pleasure, and happiness? You get the picture. In Jesus' day, it was this business brought into the temple that dishonored God and that it put off those who were coming to the temple to find God. And this ticked Jesus off. Religious people acting religious angers God. He wants those who know him to be humble about it, to represent him clearly, and to make sure that when we talk to others about Christ, we're doing so in a way that reflects who God really is and what he's really after. Jesus takes this very personally when those who claim him by name misrepresent him to others. So I'm glad that Jesus cleansed the temple. I'm glad also the third thing, verse 14, among Jesus' last acts on the earth were the healing of the blind and the lame in the temple. We don't think of this, but you read in the earlier gospel accounts, healing the, the blind and the lame, this, uh, this is a big thing. And here it's almost incidental. But think of this, Jesus knows everything that's coming. He told his disciples already, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be scourged and killed. He knows everything that's going to happen. And after he kicks out the robbers, so to speak, from the temple, and knowing everything that's going to come on him that week, what's he do? He turns to these poor people that are there looking for a little help, and he heals them, the blind and the lame. Now, if, he'd, if he had said, hey, I'm going to take some time off, I'm going to collect my thoughts, I know the terrible things that are coming, I, I just don't have time for you right now, we'd understand that. Because it'd be like, well, yeah. But here, in the last week of his life, knowing the horrendous things that are about to come on him, he knows he's going to be scourged, he knows he's going to be crucified, worst of all, he knows when he's on the cross, as sin for us, he knows that the Father is going to forsake him. The worst thing of all, and faced with all that, he still takes care of these guys that are coming up, basically asking for a little help. And you know, one of the great reasons Jesus came to the earth was to bring healing to those like us who are afflicted with sin and death. And think of this, you and I are born in this world to die, right? 
death reigns on this planet. You're born to die. Talked about this with Rachel this week. I'm all for being healthy. But you know what? I'm going to die. I'm all for, I, I want to be as healthy as I can be to do all the things I need to do on this planet. But guess what? I'm in the process of dying now. I'm 52. Lord help me when I'm 82 if I get there. My knees, you know, my back. But this little healing, if you will, this little healing of blind or lame or whatever else it is, reminds us that Christ really came to give this ultimate healing. That the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, they need more than their sight restored here or their lames given their limbs given strength here. They need a bigger and they need a better healing. And when Jesus heals the blind and the lame in the temple, on this occasion it reminds me that he's come to give an ultimate healing. And this reminds me that he is the ultimate healer. And through his death and resurrection, you and I gain ultimate healing. We gain life that lasts forever and bodies that will never die again. Let me say this too. Um, We need to be careful. Uh, All of us probably at some point in our life, we go through some difficulty. It might be physical like these folks had. It might be otherwise. It could be economic. It could be emotional. I mean, it could be countless things. Where we feel like God doesn't know or God doesn't care. He doesn't know or he doesn't care. Just be careful entertaining those thoughts. You know, when your loved one dies or your child is sick or whatever, fill in the blank. Be careful about entertaining that thought. Either God doesn't know or God doesn't care. Jesus healed the the lame and the blind here confronted with his own excruciating death as a precursor, if you will, to the ultimate healing he would purchase with his life on the cross. So when you're feeling down, if God's not answering your prayers in just the way you want to for health or healing or economic success or whatever that looks like, be careful about entertaining those thoughts that he doesn't know or doesn't care. I'm glad Jesus took time to heal the blind and the lame here in his last week on the earth. This may sound oxymoronic, but the fourth thing I'm glad, I'm thrilled about, is that Jesus wept. I'm thrilled that Jesus wept. You know, in that Luke passage, when he comes to Jerusalem, he looks at the city and it says he weeps. This is a big deal. Only two times in the Gospels does it say that Jesus wept. Once at Lazarus' grave, and once here looking at Jerusalem. So, my question is, what makes God cry? What strikes at the Lord in such a way that He weeps? It's death. Jesus weeps over death. Remember at Lazarus' grave, all it says is Jesus wept. It doesn't fill in the blanks all the reasons why, but it's in the context of death. And Mary and Martha really lost their brother. Lazarus is really dead. And here, Jesus weeps because as he looks at Jerusalem, he knows death is coming because of their rejection of him. Specifically here, he was mentioning what what occurred in 70 AD when Titus and the Romans totally leveled the city of Jerusalem. He wept over the death that followed their rejection of him. But you know, more than that, 
To reject Jesus was to reject the Prince of Peace, the author of life, the forgiver of sins, the ultimate healer. So when Jesus looks at Jerusalem and weeps, it reflects what God cares about. And the reason for me especially, this is uh, encouraging. You know, we live in a day and a time in which oftentimes, if you talk about ultimate destinies, that someone who rejects Christ won't be with Christ, they'll be in a place they probably don't want to be in the end, you'll be accused of being small-minded, your God's small, he's, he's vengeful, etc., etc., etc. Jesus weeps over death and over those who refuse life. He doesn't rejoice. And in a day when God is often accused, or Christians are accused, of being small-minded to think that Buddhists and Muslims and others who do not accept Christ or His claims won't be with Him forever. You're accused of being small-minded. But Jesus weeps over those who reject Him. In Ezekiel 33, I know this is a tangent, but in in a passage about death and judgment and responsibility and morality and sin, God said to Israel hundreds of years earlier, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that the wicked will turn from his way and live, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? God doesn't want death. God wants life. God doesn't delight in death. God delights in life. I'm glad Jesus wept over Jerusalem. And the fifth thing out of verses 15 and 16, I'm glad that children shouted Jesus' praises there on that first Palm Sunday. I imagine part of what had happened was this. These little kids, you know, who might have been from chest high down, when Jesus comes in, you know, compared to their adults, they would have looked up and they would have seen their parents and the adults around them shouting out these phrases from the Psalms. And so they mimic what they hear from their parents. And so they ascribed to Jesus, Hosanna to the son of David. But they got that from someplace, didn't they? They were mimicking, they were repeating what they had heard their parents and those adult Jews around them saying. And this encourages me for two reasons. One, there's nothing like hearing kids sing, is there? Or cry out. There's a simplicity there that's engaging. We love that. But also it means that children were getting something from their parents and from the community of faith, if you will, around them. You know, children, if you're a parent, you know this, children really are a mirror into what you value, what's important to you, what you want or don't want. And these little ones in the temple, they're repeating what they just heard. Hosanna to the son of David. So these voices of innocence and simplicity, if you will, on one hand, are repeating what they had heard from their parents and from the crowds around them. And I wonder, for us today as parents or as older Christians, when those under our charge, when they mimic us, if our children, if the children in this church, or the young Christians, or the young children that you and I interact with, if they reflect what we value, what are they reflecting? Do they get Hosanna to the Son of David from hanging out with us? What are we passing on to the generation behind us? I confess I fear 
that as often as not, we, and I mean the church, and I typically talk about the church in the West, and that's as opposed to the church in persecuted areas, but the affluent West, primarily, where we have things, at least physically, fairly easy, I fear that we, as often as not, are so consumed by worry and the cares of life that we don't stop long enough to see Christ clearly and to recognize His grandness and His majesty and His beauty and His desirability so that we don't cry out like those kids did then with these ready voices, God's praises. My prayer from this is just that we would be as simple, if you will, as they were. They repeated what they heard to be true about Jesus. And think about this too. They were saying this in front of religious leaders who rejected Jesus' claims. Uh, There were people around them that were smarter than they were, that knew more than they were, that said, you're wrong, this guy isn't the Messiah. So with less education than the religious leaders, they actually knew more, and they knew more of what was important than the religious leaders there did. And I just pray that we have the simplicity of heart or the simplicity of what we look at and value that the kids did here. You know, Jesus said elsewhere that if these kept quiet, the rocks themselves would cry out. And, you know, I pray that God doesn't have to wait for rocks. You know, that we are at least like the kids and not like the rocks. You've probably got lots of your own reasons why Palm Sunday is special or you appreciate it. Let me rehearse these again. I'm glad Jesus offered himself and he offered life again and again and again. I'm glad Jesus cleared the temple to honor his Father and to give Gentiles like us the opportunity to see God clearly. I'm encouraged that Jesus healed the blind and the lame because it reminds me that he's after an ultimate healing that is going to happen after just a little bit more time. I really am thrilled that Jesus wept over Jerusalem because it tells me how much he values people coming to life, not death and not judgment. And I'm thrilled over the delightful sound of children declaring Jesus' praise and the encouragement that is to me, and I think should be to us as a church, to do the same. Let's pray. Lord, uh, there's a song that says you didn't wait for me to cry out to you. You moved first. And Lord, Palm Sunday reminds us that salvation is all your work. Uh, You looked at us in our need. You sent your Son, a Savior. He revealed who you were and what you were like, what your goodwill was. And in doing all of that and healing the lame and performing miracles, Lord, he was still rejected by those who should have known who he was and should have accepted him. Lord, we don't claim to be any better than the Jews that last week in Jesus' life. We at one moment sang his praises and within the week uh, called for his blood. Lord, we are thrilled that none of that dissuaded you or put you off. It was, in fact, what you knew we would do. You made the offers and you became the ultimate sacrifice within that week so that we could come to life and live with you forever. Lord Jesus, I know there's another Palm Sunday coming. 
when you do ride into this earth on a war horse and you lay claim to that which is yours by right as creator and redeemer and Lord until that day comes and as long as we have life and breath on this earth help us to be like those kids in the temple who declared your praises who recognized you and your worth and sang out about it we commit ourselves again to you now in jesus name amen